Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is Democracy Now! Alia refused to leave the medical center. He was insisting on being admitted to the center and on being under medical observation. So they brought in a riot squad to carry him out. As he was being carried out, back to his cell, he, as he expresses it, he lost it. He had a meltdown and he promised to kill himself if he was taken back to the cell. When they put him in the cell, he started to smash his head against the wall. He was restrained and tied down and the cell was put on a suicide watch. A near-death experience. That's what Egyptian political prisoner Ala Abdel Fattah told his family he went through last week before his seven-month-long hunger strike was broken. We'll speak with his aunt, the renowned writer Hadef Swift, who visited him in prison yesterday along with Allah's mother and sister. Then we'll speak to a Ukrainian climate activist who was kicked out of the UN Climate Summit after she and others disrupted an event hosted by Russia here in Sharm el-Sheikh. You're a fossil fuel industry that's killing the people. It's literally responsible. You're despicable. You're despicable. We will also speak with Ukraine's leading climate scientist, as well as a prominent Russian environmentalist living in exile who's here at the COP. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Talks are expected to go into overtime on the last official day of the COP27 climate conference here in Sharm el-Sheikh, as delegates seek a compromise on an agreement over the issue of loss and damage and how to slow down global emissions to combat the climate catastrophe. Activists condemned an early draft agreement which failed to call for the phase-down of all fossil fuels. On Thursday, the European Union agreed to a new loss and damage fund to compensate poor nations for the impacts of the climate crisis. But key actors, including the United States, have thus far objected to such a fund. In an 11th-hour appeal to climate delegates, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called on Thursday for nations to to overcome a breakdown in trust between rich and poor and stand together to prevent the worst effects of the climate crisis. This is no time for finger pointing. The blame game is a recipe for mutually assured destruction. I'm here to appeal to all parties to rise to this moment and to the greatest challenge that humanity is facing. We'll have more on the UN Climate Summit here in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, later in the broadcast. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she will not seek a leadership role in the next Congress after two decades spent leading House Democrats. Pelosi spoke from the House floor Thursday after midterm election results showed Republicans have won a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. 
In California, Democratic Congressmember Katie Porter has been re-elected to represent the 47th House District in Orange County after a narrow win. Porter is a former UC Irvine law professor known for her tough questioning of witnesses during hearings of the House Oversight and Natural Resource Committees. questioning, for example, the heads of Wells Fargo and Bank of America, as well as J.P. Morgan Chase. In Colorado, the race between far-right Republican Congress member Lauren Boebert and Democratic challenger Adam Frisch appears to be headed for a recount. After initial tallies showed Boebert's lead at just over 500 votes out of 327,000 counted. Boebert is a far-right Trump supporter, an election denier, and infamously vowed to carry her Glock pistol on the Capitol grounds. Last year, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy McCarthy refused to sanction Boebert after she used racist language to attack her Muslim colleagues. Ukraine's government says 10 million people have been left without electricity after dozens of Russian aerial attacks targeted Ukraine's civilian infrastructure. On Thursday, the first snow of the season fell on Kyiv and other parts of Ukraine. In Russia, U.S. political prisoner women's basketball star Brittany Griner has been moved to a penal colony hundreds of miles southeast of Moscow. Earlier today, Russia's deputy foreign minister said he hopes to negotiate a prisoner swap with the U.S. that would include convicted arms trafficker Victor Boot, known as the Merchant of Death. Meanwhile, jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny said Thursday he's been permanently transferred to a crap solitary confinement cell in a notorious penal colony east of Moscow and will be largely cut off from the outside world. The Biden administration's petitioning a U.S. court to grant Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman sovereign immunity in a civil case seeking legal accountability for his involvement in the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The U.S. State Department argued bin Salman's new role as Saudi Arabia's prime minister means that he's, quote, the sitting head of government and accordingly immune. Biden vowed as a presidential candidate to make Saudi Arabia a pariah for the state-sponsored killing of Khashoggi, who is a Washington Post columnist. But since taking office, Biden has refused to condemn bin Salman for ordering Khashoggi's killing and dismemberment. In the Gaza Strip, at least 21 people were killed and others injured on Thursday after a fire tore through an apartment complex in the crowded Jabalia refugee camp. In response to a request from the Palestinian Authority, Israeli officials said they would lift Gaza's normal travel restrictions to allow survivors to seek medical treatment in Israel. The FIFA World Cup soccer tournament opens in Qatar Sunday as human rights advocates condemn serious labor and human rights abuses against migrant workers who built stadiums and other infrastructure in preparation for Qatar to host one of the most anticipated international sports tournaments. Rights groups report thousands of migrant workers from countries including India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka have died in the dozen years since Qatar won the right to host this year's World Cup. Qatar has also deported migrant workers who've denounced wage theft. 
In New York City, part-time faculty members at the new school have gone on an indefinite strike to demand a fair union contract. Adjuncts say they haven't received a pay raise since 2018, and that administrators' offer of a 3.5 percent wage increase falls short of keeping pace with record inflation. Meanwhile, nearly 50,000 student workers at all 10 University of California campuses are on the fifth day of an open-ended strike. The workers are demanding child care subsidies, better health care for dependents, lower tuition for international scholars, and are asking for their compensation to be tied to housing costs. In more labor news, thousands of Starbucks workers at over 100 stores nationwide walked off the job yesterday over the company's refusal to bargain in good faith with newly unionized workers. Starbucks workers in New York joined the Day of Action, dubbed the Red Cup Rebellion. Starbucks claims to be a progressive company, but they drive us to the bone every single day. Um, our health care is unaffordable for many of us. Um, we have serious uh, health and safety issues in our store. We are on strike because we are fighting for better scheduling, um, fair wages, and um, the failure to bargain from Starbucks. They have not decided to bargain with the unions, which is an illegal activity. They've been stalling. They've been doing their best to uh, avoid us. Hundreds of Twitter workers resigned Thursday after rejecting new owner Elon Musk's one-day ultimatum to go, quote, extremely hardcore or leave within three months with three months severance pay. Twitter has closed its doors until Monday as it figures out which former workers it now needs to cut access for. And amidst rumors, Musk is worried about internal sabotage at the company. Musk reportedly met with some workers in hopes of convincing them to stay. The hashtag RIP Twitter began trending on Twitter. On Thursday night, a light projection on Twitter's San Francisco headquarters trolled Elon Musk with the words bankruptcy baby, apartheid profiteer, and space Karen, among other insults. Alabama prison officials called off the execution of Kenneth Eugene Smith Thursday after they struggled to establish an IV line for his lethal injection. Alabama canceled another execution in September for the same reason. This comes after an execution team in Arizona struggled Wednesday with the killing of a prisoner for the third time this year. 76-year-old Murray Hooper had always maintained his innocence after being convicted of murder and sentenced to death in 1983 without any DNA evidence, but was repeatedly denied DNA testing. After failing to insert an IV into Hooper's arm, his executioners used a vein near his groin. Hooper reportedly turned to witnesses and said, can you believe this? And Stoughton Lynn, the longtime peace and civil rights activist, lawyer, author, and people's historian, has died at the age of 92. In the early 1960s, Stoughton Lynn taught alongside his friend Howard Zinn at Spelman College in Atlanta and served as director of the SNCC Freedom Schools of Mississippi. He was a leading early critic of the Vietnam War. The State Department stripped him of his passport after he traveled to North Vietnam in 1965. Stoughton Lynn was a conscientious objector during the Korean War, later supported U.S. soldiers who refused to fight in Iraq. He appeared on Democracy Now! in 2006. The logic of those precedents is that a soldier in Iraq 
or like Lieutenant Aaron Watada, under orders to be deployed to Iraq, can say, I consider this to be a war crime. Even if my superiors tell me something different, I am obliged to use my own judgment, my own conscience, and so I say no. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit here in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. We begin with a story we've been following closely. It's Alaa Abdel Fattah's 41st birthday today. The imprisoned technologist, writer, and activist had a near-death experience last week, according to his family, who were able to visit him in prison Thursday for the first time in almost a month. In a statement released last night, the family said he appeared exhausted, weak, vulnerable, and very, very thin. Alaa a dual Egyptian-British citizen who's been in prison for most of the past nine years, began a hunger strike over seven months ago to protest his imprisonment and demand a consular visit from the British embassy. On November 6, he escalated his strike and stopped drinking water altogether to coincide with the first day of the UN Climate Summit. Last Thursday, prison authorities said they began an unspecified medical intervention on Allah, while his sister Sana Saif campaigned here at COP27 to raise awareness about her brother's case. Then earlier this week, Allah informed his family in handwritten notes he'd started drinking water again and had ended the hunger strike. But it wasn't until his family was able to visit him Thursday in the Wedi El Nutran prison that they learn the details of what happened. Speaking through a glass barrier via a phone hookup, Ala told his family he'd repeatedly smashed his head against the wall on Tuesday and Wednesday last week. He did so the first time after having a meltdown when prison officials refused to acknowledge his strike. He was restrained, tied down, put on suicide watch, the second to force authorities to send an investigator to file an official report about his hunger strike. On November 11th, Ala collapsed in the shower, woke up surrounded by his cellmates and a medical team who put an IV in his arm. They gave him electrolyte fluid, a spoonful of honey, and a pickle. This is how his hunger strike was broken. In the statement, his family said, quote, He says he could see then that his wish for the end was getting the better of him, that there was a strong part of him that was ready to die. He also recognized that this was partly due, partly to do with his physical weakness, and so he had to fight it. All of this was happening as tens of thousands of delegates are convening here in Sharm el-Sheikh for COP27. Allah's case has been at the forefront of the summit with calls by climate justice activists for his release and world leaders, including the heads of state of Britain, France, Germany, and the United States, raising his case in their meetings with the Egyptian president, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. But the Egyptian government has made no indication they will release him. On Wednesday, I caught up with the Egyptian foreign ministry spokesperson, Ahmed Abu Zaid, here at the summit and tried to ask him about the case. This is too important. Just because I have an appointment now. I know, but in just 30 seconds, if you might tell me if President Sisi will be freeing Allah Abdel Fattah. As I mentioned, I have to give you back again for you. After I have finished this meeting, I'll come back to you, okay? Do you promise? Yes, sure. Yes, sure. Despite his promise, 
The Egyptian foreign ministry spokesperson did not join us for the show, so we approached him again on Thursday. Mr. Abuzaid, we, we waited for you on the show yesterday. I swear to God, I have to finish things now. Uh, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm just passing by here. Can, yeah, I know. I saw your foreign minister. Can we, can we, can you join us on the show on, at 3 o'clock? No, believe me, it's very difficult. Uh, have you gotten an answer to the question if they're freeing Allah? sit with you. Hello? The Egyptian foreign ministry spokesperson refused to answer questions once again. The family says Allah will resume his hunger strike imminently if there continues to be no real movement in his case. He's been in prison for almost all of the last decade. For more, we go to Cairo to speak with Ahadef Sui. She's the author of a number of books, including Cairo, My City, Our Revolution, and The Map of Love, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. She's also Allah's aunt and visited Allah yesterday, along with Allah's mother, Leila, and his sister, Sana. Adef Suef, welcome back to Democracy Now! I'm so sorry it's under these circumstances. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Amy. It's always good to talk to you. Adef, can you just describe what happened yesterday? Describe the scene at the prison after waiting for hours. What was it like to see Allah? What does he look like? He uh, is very, very thin, and he seems very frail. And we saw him in a in a glass cabin with a barrier between us. Um, conversation had to happen through a handset which was quite faint so one person would be holding the handset and the others would be just waiting and watching so I was watching Alet for for a while and um, the frailty really really uh, got to me as well as he from time to time had to just gently lean against the wall but um, he had a great deal of energy it was like nervous energy he was talking I'm sorry. He was talking, talking. He he needed to describe Keep what going. had happened to him. He was talking. Yeah, he was talking. He needed to describe what happened to him. He was talking very fast. He was using a lot of, of hand gestures. Um, so there was a lot of energy there and a lot of, of, of need to relay what had happened. It, we received a letter from him. Um, <clears throat> which we took away with us yesterday and we're just about reading now, in which he says that he tried to write down this experience um, and put it in a letter so he wouldn't have to spend the 20 minutes of the visit describing it. But um, the authorities had preferred that this would be described uh, in person rather than committed to writing. Yesterday, you spoke to some reporters along with your niece, Sana, Allah's sister. She said, quote, it was my advice to Allah that he shouldn't go back to a hunger strike, not because I think a hunger strike is wrong, but because psychologically he's very, very unstable. I'm not sure if he will try to hurt himself again. They're very cruel in how they operate, and a body on hunger strike is very vulnerable body, and a mind on hunger strike is a very vulnerable mind. Ahadef, uh, Allah says he will go back on hunger strike if there is no movement on his case. Your thoughts? Um, if if Allah had not gone on hunger strike and if we hadn't uh, managed to ignite the international campaign for him, there would be no hope at all of uh, of his release or even of acceding to any of his demands. 
therefore, the step of going on hunger strike, again, has to be one that is considered, even though it really breaks my heart, to think of him going back on hunger strike when he is so thin and so weak. But um, Ayla is a strong person, and he is a wonderful combination of um, rationality and emotion. And what he said, which you mentioned earlier, is that when he was uh, coming back from being unconscious, um, and for a while, he felt the sweetness of allowing it to be the end, um, the relief. And at the same time, he realized that this was probably partly to do with weakness and that this was, um, he sort of, I am really going to look at this properly, but he describes it as something like uh, like a, 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 a possible virus getting into and sort of riding on his struggle to be free. And therefore he decided that he really had to fight it and he had to strengthen in himself the will to live. Um, and so he decided that he would eat, that he would not go back to the hunger strike straight away, that he would build up his strength again, that he would give his cellmates a break because they had been having a really hard time because of his ordeal, um, and that he would ask us for a birthday cake so that he could celebrate not just his birthday, but celebrate life itself as he puts it, and all the births that had been and that were yet to come. So he is in there, he is re-establishing a positive um, sense and positive attitude, um, and he's trying to build up his strength and the strength of his cellmates so that if he has to go back on hunger strike, he will. I passionately hope that he does not have to do this, that we don't have to start counting the days again. And so really, um, the campaign, yes, it was linked, the urgency of it was linked to his hunger strike, but the campaign has left no one in any doubt that Alec should be free. Um, and there are voices in Egypt that are saying this as well. In the visit yesterday, you and your sister Leila, your niece Sana, told Allah about what's happening here in the outside world and the global wave of support for him. In response, Allah said, quote, any form of political organizing that may solve our global crises has to stem from personal solidarity like this. Um, can you talk about what it meant to him when you describe what was happening? I mean, here at the summit, it has changed the whole discussion. The issue that climate justice cannot be talked about without considering human rights. Yeah, it has. We see that and, and it, it transformed uh, COP27. And I have to say as well that there are um, our friends and colleagues, um, Egyptian NGOs, people like Hossein Baghdad, who have really taken a huge risk in speaking out uh, at COP. And we are waiting to see what happens when COP is over and the guests go home. We really hope that this might be a turning point or at least some kind of, um, I don't know, new page or new beginning and things can open up a bit a bit here because that is very much what is needed for Ale. Yes, of course, he was very, I mean, 
he had no idea. I mean, for three weeks, he had no idea what was happening outside his cell. Even being admitted to the medical center was not permitted, probably in order to keep him in in isolation so that he wouldn't know what's what's going on. So it was it was very important and very big for him to learn the size of what happened. Um, but also when I told him about a couple of personal messages, um, letters that had been written to him by Palestinian prisoners and by Moroccan prisoners, and a picture that someone had sent of herself celebrating her birthday with her partner and saying <clears throat> that um, that she would never <clears throat> that she would never again take the presence of loved ones on your um, special occasions for granted and that she and her partner were thinking of Ale on their day um he there's he has there's a very sort of special smile that um that overtakes all of Ale's face sometimes and it's um it's a very tender smile and it was when I mentioned personal things like that 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 really shone through and it was after that that he um, said this thing about about personal solidarity perhaps being the basis uh, for organizing for global global uh, issues. Uh, Def Swift, is the British government doing enough? He is an Egyptian British citizen. Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, was here. He'd already issued a statement of concern about Allah. Um, and you've got the German chancellor calling for his freedom. Biden raised the issue when he was here. What are you demanding of world leaders? Well, Allah is a dual national. He's a British citizen. And we completely don't understand how the British can allow a friendly nation with a lot of shared interests to stall on as simple and small an issue as a consular visit. When Sana received her British passport, um, within six weeks, she had a consular visit when she was in prison as well. So Ale is being singled out for very special, very harsh treatment. And really, really, the British government should not allow it. it it's, um, it's insulting, actually. And we have had questions, we have had really sharp and pointed questions in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons. Uh, the British media have really done its bit. But Unfortunately, the language that's coming from Downing Street and from the common, uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, um, yes, they speak about being committed. They speak about a high priority. They speak about constant uh, mentionings of the case. But we have had no results. Of course, um, finally, Adef, the, you. Uh, Ella asked for an MP3 player, which for the first time he got in years. Can you talk about the significance of that moment? He said that um, music makes him feel alive. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually incredibly important because he has been asking for music for three years now. And music is, is just a very it's a central part of Ale's life. Um, and... Uh, Getting the MP3 in in the letter, he describes how um, it had run out of battery already, and they got batteries and so on. And then actually, uh, he says that there was a moment of almost Sufi uh, 
exaltation when he heard comfortably numb and he says the uh that amazing great solo ringing in my ears while the blood came back to my limbs well adif swef we want to thank you so much for being with us for reporting on your visit with ala yesterday along with ala's mother your sister and your niece sana his sister uh, and his mother um adif swef is the author of several books including the map of love and cairo my city or revolution Um, we're going to play in our music break the first piece of music that Ella heard in three years, Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb. And then we speak with Ukrainian climate activist and the leading Ukrainian uh, climate scientist. Stay with us. Pink Floyd, the first music Ala Abdel Fattah heard in three years. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm Amy Goodman. A prominent Ukrainian climate activist and environmental lawyer has been suspended from the UN climate talks after she and others disrupted a Russian event here inside COP27. During the event, Svetlana Romanko and others accused Russia of committing war crimes in Ukraine. Svetlana Romanko and the other activists removed from the event then had their COP27 badges suspended. Svetlana has since left 
Egypt over fears for her safety following the incident. She's joining us now. She founded the Stand with Ukraine campaign and Raison We Stand. We last spoke to her in April, shortly after she co-wrote an article with Bill McKibben, headlined The Ukraine War is a Decision Point. Banks should stop funding the fossil fuel industry forever. Svetlana Romanko, welcome back to Democracy Now! We're going to go to this protest in a minute, but a quick thought on our first segment. The joining together of the issue of climate justice and human rights with the um, long-time imprisonment of Ala Abdel Fattah um, and the demand for his freedom that has so reverberated throughout this summit. Hello, Emir. Thank you so much for having me here again uh, with Democracy Now! And truly, uh, while our treatment in Explosion and event at COP27 uh, that tried to give some legitimacy to the murderous Russian re- regime is appalling. We also think of other activists today, earlier, and also uh, activists in Uganda and Tanzania, uh, who were multiple times detained for the ECOP opposition, and also Mozambique and across African countries and in many other countries where dictatorships are alive and well. And um, they, they all are locked in uh, prison for speaking out. And people must have the right to stand up and speak out for freedom, democracy, and climate justice. Our thoughts now, and my thoughts personally, go t- today to those activists who can't leave their insecure spaces, who are imprisoned, and their families and friends. And um, I would also like to add here that. Uh, the uh, victory over one petro dictator can spell freedom from petrocolonialism for the entire planet if we seize the moment to move away from fossil fuels. And uh, it has been uh, very clear that fossil fuels fund dictatorships all over the world in many countries. They also fund destruction in my own country. Because when I'm just speaking, 40% or even more of citizens of my country, Ukrainians, are lost access to electricity, to heating of their homes. And it's minus one degree Celsius right now outside. And I am with my team as well who works from Ukraine or supported climate talks greatly. And um, I, I, I just can say that we have to stay united. We have to think of those of us who who, are, who lost access to their basic rights, uh, rights as earlier, and we have to do everything to fight dictatorships across the world. Because as soon as we can end the dictatorships in uh, countries like Russia and many other countries, uh, African continent, um, Egypt included, the sooner we all can live in peace. And one of the ways that we expected from this climate summit to happen was a facing out uh, oil, gas, and coal strong language in their statement, which will help us and enable this fossil fuel revenue-empowered regimes and democratic, autocratic, to stop existing and to stop waging wars and conflicts Uh, and imprisoning activists. Uh, Svetlana Romanko, can you talk about the protests that you engaged in here that had you thrown out of the UN Climate Summit and why you chose to do that? You're a longtime climate activist in Ukraine. Yes, of course. And um, what I said exactly, because I just stood up at the very beginning and I just started speaking directly to the panel. This panel consisted of Minister of Energy, Environment of Russia, of uh, Special Climate 
envoy of Russia and also some business and academia and there were a lot of the representatives and I believe also Gazprom and Rosneft, Rosatom representatives sitting and just just taking happy photos during before the event started and myself who's other activists have been just uh, have been sitting as well and watching them and thinking how, how actually, how, how really, how dare you to come here in the heart of climate talks while you are destroying our climate and while you are destroying my country and other countries and while with your outrageous war and you are destroying actually the freedoms and democracy all over the world while waging this war on climate with your fossil fuel reserves and fossil fuel war. And what I did, I stood up and I actually, I actually did what every Ukrainian uh, dreamed about doing that when they meet the same person in the same room. I just said them exactly as following. Uh, you are a terrorist state and you are genociding, torturing and killing us daily for nine months. Your oil and gas is killing us. You are guilty in a war crimes, in a climate crisis, environmental crisis, and you should not be here, but in front of the International War Crimes Tribunal. And then our tribunal and then other activists started to stood up and they shouted uh, that Russia is guilty in war crimes and they shouted how, how despicable they are and until we all have been removed from this official Russian side event. Also, just to highlight the importance of why this event exactly, because Russian delegation was present in big numbers, but we have never seen them attending public spaces or communicating. And this is this was only one and only official Russian side event where we wanted to use our freedom of speaking and freedom of attending public gathering to confront uh, people who came from the country which is in open war and broke all international laws and in particular rule of law principle, destroying our environment hugely and destroying our people and destroying in a way of just half of territory of Ukraine right now. And for me it also was a very symbolic fight and um, no regret related to that at all because Facing and confronting Russia, I in a way confronted any injustice on the planet, any dictatorships, which are fueled by fossil fuels well, and which use their revenues to wage their war and conflicts against the peaceful citizens of the planet. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us, um, uh, Svetlana. We are joined as well by another Svetlana, Svetlana Krakowska, the head of the delegation of Ukraine to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. She is one of Ukraine's leading climate scientists, a senior scientist at the National Antarctic Scientific Center and head of the Applied Climatology Laboratory in Ukraine. Um, you are still inside the summit. Um, you spent eight years uh, on this last report. You were getting ready to deliver it. Russia invaded Ukraine. Can you talk about what it was like as you and other Ukrainian scientists uh, tried to release this report as the bombs were falling on your city, the capital, Kiev? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. And actually, you really asked the question which... Uh, which is, you know, it's, it was a terrible situation for me because I was head of delegation on this UN summit and we were just about uh, uh, 
you know, approving this report about uh, vulnerability, impact, and adaptation, and these bombs started to fall on Kiev. So I was... I was so angry, if you're honest. Uh, at that moment, I was so angry that, to, on top of all problems we have now in, in, uh, on our planet, in our uh, society, we now have war, which is much more you know, important for us as uh, Ukrainian scientists at that moment, and uh, of course for all on this planet, because this war, as I, I, was, I was thinking you know, ahead, and I was you know, project that we will have after in, in, few, in few days, in few weeks, in few months, and what we have now. And it's exactly what we have now, actually. You've called um, Ukraine's war a climate, uh, a fossil fuel war. Uh, explain what you mean. First of all, I would say that it's not Ukraine's war. <laughs> so this is Russian war on Ukraine. So this is big difference, in fact. And with this, uh, it was very clear for me from very beginning, because I'm climate scientist, that Russia can do and she able to do this war just because she has enough money, enough and big army, actually. And this army was built just because Russia has so good, okay, good now, not good, but, but fossil fuels, which uh, she actually sold to other countries. So it means for me uh, that fossil fuels, it's a root, it's enabler of, uh, of the war, of Russia war on Ukraine. At the same time, fossil fuels is the cause of climate change. So for me, it was clear, this connection. And now I'm really very happy that this is clear for many people in the world. And now we are, I hope, about to, to finish our dependency on fossil fuels. I mean, your science is so important to you, Svetlana. Um, you decided not to leave Kiev. You have four children. Yeah, I have four children, actually, and yeah, we decided to stay in Kyiv. Again, I said I was angry. I was angry because I didn't want to leave my native city where I was born, where my children were born, actually, just because somebody wants me to leave, you know. And, uh, of course, it was not, uh, you know, it was a conscious, actually, decision because we were, we were sitting with my husband and just uh, estimating risks, you know, as, as climate risk, we were estimating risk for our family, for my children. And after all, we decide that, okay, we will manage this risk inside the city. So we put stripes on our windows. We, we were in the corridors. My, my daughter spent few months in a bathroom, just living there with her cats, actually. Well, I was given... Uh, I don't know, hundreds of interviews from, from my flat just to, to show people how it is be inside, actually. And at the same time, I, I ask people, don't stop to fight climate change. Because when we were and we're still in this war in Ukraine, of course, it's our threat right now. But climate change will not stop. So it means that other nations should make more on our behalf as well. But now, actually, I'm really happy. Uh, I didn't speak about climate change in Ukraine half a year from the full-scale invasion. But now, here at COP, Ukraine, first time, had its own pavilion where we met 
a lot of every day we had few events and I organized these events and these events were about recovery, about green transition, about our future. And this is really essential for us in Ukraine to, to, to think about future and this better future actually on this green way. You're a leading scientist uh, in Ukraine, which makes you a leading scientist, climate scientist in the world. Your assessment of how the talks have progressed, what many scientists and activists are saying, it's astounding they don't mention fossil fuels or the phasing down of all fossil fuels. Your thoughts? Uh, I should say that this COP, well, I, I don't have too, uh, too much, you know, experience in COP. I'm scientist. I'm not pol- political. I, I do even science in, in IPCC as well. So for me, it is second COP. I remember my first just a year ago, and I was really very, you know, <laughs> I was surprised how we were listened as scientists. And now I see it's even more that politicians start to to listen to science and I hope actually they because they're not only politicians they're humans as well and they're impacted by and they see all this impact of climate change so I see this uh, good signs of changing if be honest I understand that we uh, all science and uh, all civil society we need to continue to push them to make more to be more active but at the same time, I understand that uh, many actions should be very well, you know, think in advance, because maladaptation could be uh, actually happen in, in this world as well. So we need, it, it's, climate system is a very complex system, and we need to think carefully and really rely on science. Are you returning to Kyiv after this UN climate summit? Yes, I will return to Kyiv. To Kyiv where, yeah, my family now almost... More than half day without electricity in cold uh, flats uh, with first snow, which is not too much, you know, happy as they are uh, for. And uh, well, but anyway, I, I, I mean, I'm a positive person and uh, I am really optimistic uh, in my soul, I would say. I saw him and I met here so many prominent scientists and activists. I pretty believe uh, that we can do it together. And again, I can uh, say it's uh, from our Ukrainian perspective. From the very beginning of this war, we were so much united, all. Because before, uh, we argued a lot inside society. We were not pleased with our government, our president, but then we were united. And with this, we are winning now. So I really believe that if we all in the world will unite, we will win this fight as well. Well, Svetlana Krakowska, I want to thank you so much for being with us, head of the delegation of Ukraine to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. She is one of Ukraine's leading climate scientists. Next up, we speak with a prominent Russian environmentalist. He's here at the COP, but living in exile. Stay with us. Traits. You go to school and learn the golden rule. So 
acting like a bloody fool. If you get hot, then you must get cool. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Or what you gonna do when they come for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Or what you gonna do when they come for you? You chuck it on that one, you chuck it on this one, you chuck it on your mother and you chuck it on your father, you chuck it on your brother and you chuck it on your sister, you chuck it on that one and you chuck it on me. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? Bad Boys by Inner Circle. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we continue to broadcast from the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, we're joined now by the prominent Russian environmentalist, Vladimir Slivyak. He's co-chair of the Russian environmental group EcoDefense. Last year, he won the Right Livelihood Award, the alternative Nobel Peace Prize, for defending the environment and mobilizing grassroots opposition to the coal and nuclear industries in Russia. He's now living in exile in Germany, but is joining us here in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, Vladimir. Um, You have been to every single climate summit since the first one back in 1995 in Berlin? Yeah, that's true. So can you talk about your experience here, um, a bit different from the past, with your own country, Russia, at war with Ukraine, and what that means when it comes to uh, climate catastrophes? Well, first of all, I can say that Russia been very silent at these negotiations. I mean, there was a couple of events, but obviously officials don't want to risk uh, and get into trouble with Ukrainian people, and they're afraid of them. Uh, and the government, the only governmental side event happened two days ago, and there was a lot of Ukrainian activists who were uh, at the side event. They were shouting. They were, you know, giving really hard time to Russian officials. Did and- you agree with their position? I, I am totally agree with them. Russia started bloody war in Ukraine. That should be stopped immediately. Ukraine must be free and Russia should withdraw its troops from Ukraine. Absolutely. Can you talk about what your greatest concerns are? I mean, the whole discussion about a possible nuclear bomb or nuclear power plant becoming a kind of bomb if it is attacked and what that means. That has long been your work. Well, for the first time in history, we're witnessing how one country is taking over another country's nuclear plant and actually threatening to, well with nuclear accident, and at the same time, this this country, which is Russia, is also threatening the world with uh, starting nuclear war. And, uh, I mean, we've never seen it in the history. I hope we will never see it again in the history, anything like this. But I think it's totally ir- irresponsible, and, uh, f- uh, and it's done by Vladimir Putin regime. And uh, from my point of view, unfortunately, my country became a fascist state, and um, I really mean it when I'm saying it. Um, well, I just hope there will be system change and a regime change in Russia, so activists will have uh, another chance to continue working there. How do you think that will happen? 
Well, I think the, there is quite some chance the regime will fall by itself because it, so many things been uh, done so wrong in Russia. And I think the well, our best chance is that uh, this regime is just too weak. It was not designed for a war. It was designed for a peace of all times. So, I mean, it's a big question for me whether this regime will actually survive the war it started. Uh, Vladimir Slivyak, um, there was a BBC correspondent who was removed from a Russian side event. Can you talk about what actually happened there and the question that that reporter was asking? No, well, the reporter asked a question about uh, uh, war in Ukraine, about Russian war in Ukraine and Russian responsibility. And uh, the security just removed him from a room. Uh, and obviously security was uh, uh, informed by the Russian delegation to remove people who talking about war because this is what they wanted to avoid, basically. They thought they could avoid uh, speaking about war this side of it. Um, your organization, Eco Defense, um, together with the Helsinki Committee, one of Russia's oldest human rights groups, filed a lawsuit, one of the first climate-related lawsuits against the Russian Federation. Can you talk about what your demands are and what the latest news is about this lawsuit? Well, our demands are very simple. We want climate action from Russian government. Russian government has never been doing anything for climate. Uh, there is no any plans to reduce use of fossil fuel. There is no any plans to um, develop renewable sources of energy. And uh, in general, that's some kind of a policy that you would expect 50 years ago from a big country, but not now, not in the 21st century. So all we wanted, and we, we applied to high court in Russia, and we wanted court to decide that um, Russian government should actually finally start doing something for climate, means reducing pollution and emissions, means uh, uh, reducing use of fossil fuel and start to develop renewable energy. Our appeal was turned down, so we're now going with it to European Court on Human Rights. Let me ask you something. As we walk through the pavilions, um, we see a whole nuclear energy uh, stall, let's say. It's way larger than a stall. And you see a lot of people wearing t-shirts, ask me about nuclear energy. Um, the International Atomic Energy Agency, for the first time in the 27 years of this UN Climate Summit, has set up presentations for nuclear energy. Can you talk about the significance of this and this being posed as an answer to fossil fuels? Um... It's unprecedented. It has never been like that in the previous COPs. Uh, we have never seen that big uh, activity of a nuclear industry. And I think the reason is very clear. This industry been in the, in the decline over a very long period of time. Uh, well, it's first time in the last 40 years when the generation of nuclear energy is below 10% globally. Uh, in, the, in the global uh, energy balance, it's now less than 10%. At the same time, renewable energy is growing very fast, and it produces more than 10% uh, of a global energy. And, uh, of course, nuclear industry feel threatened. They feel like it's their last chance to advertise. They feel like if they cannot get... Uh, 
some piece of this climate money now, and they cannot, if they cannot uh, push countries for ordering more nuclear reactors, it may very well be the end of a nuclear industry globally. So that's why they became so much active now, and they lobbying so much. And I, I also want to say that uh, here at the negotiations, it's great that we have a coalition of uh, non-governmental organizations called Don't Nuke the Climate. They published a very good statement this morning uh, condemning nuclear power and saying uh, nuclear power cannot save the climate. And it's very simple, and it's very simple to describe why. First thing, it takes very long to build nuclear reactors. Like, for example, if you decide, if you would be the country that decided to build nuclear reactors, uh, you would spend close to 20 years from the moment you plan reactor to the moment that generate electricity. And we don't need climate action in 20 years. We need it today. I mean, time is running out. The second thing, it's very expensive. It's extremely expensive source of energy. It's much more expensive than everything else on Earth. And compared to renewable energy, renewables have been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over the last decade. There is, you cannot even compare it. And of course, the third thing in nuclear accidents. We all remember Fukushima 2011, Chernobyl 1986. Nuclear power can be extremely dangerous for people in the environment and should, should not be allowed to be an instrument of a climate action. Vladimir Slivyak, Russia is the third largest supplier of uranium to the United States. Now, President Biden has banned oil and gas imports from Russia, but not uranium. Talk about the significance of this. Well, I've been a campaigner. I mean, this year, almost the whole year, I'm uh, in. Uh, I'm acting as an anti-war campaigner. I'm going around different countries, um, meeting politicians, talking to media, doing public talks on basically only one issue, and this issue is stop war in Ukraine. And uh, it's very important to understand how war in Ukraine became possible. It became possible because Vladimir Putin accumulated enough money, and he got enough money to start this war because the, the Western countries, European Union and the United States, been paying Russian regime over a very long period of time incredibly big money for, for the energy resources, for fossil fuel, for uranium. And uh, in Europe, where I'm mostly working now, uh, we can hear a lot of statements about fossil fuel, and I think Europe's doing good about embargo for fossil fuel, but we almost hear none uh, no information on uh, uranium uh, delivery from Russia, and this is what I'm campaigning right now on. Uh, well, U.S. is dependent on Russian uranium delivery. Uh, Europe is also dependent on it. It's uh, almost 20% of uranium supplied by Russia to the EU, and it's another almost 20% supplied by Kazakhstan, and production of uranium in Kazakhstan is basically under control of Russia. So it's close to half of uranium that used in Europe today coming from Russia. But the, the most important thing to understand that uh, it's still possible to do something with this dependence and why we should do something about this dependence. For one very simple reason. As long as the United States and European Union continue to pay Vladimir Putin for uranium or fossil fuel, that means that this money will be used for the war in Ukraine. That means more people will die in Ukraine because US but and the EU cannot 
stop it. We have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so much for being with Welcome. us. Vladimir Slivyak, co-chair of the leading Russian environmental organization, EcoDefense. Um, that does it for our show. The uh, UN Climate Summit is expected to go through the weekend. We'll be reporting more on it on Monday. A very happy belated birthday to our digital editor, Ishmael Darrow. Special thanks to our UK and Cairo-based AP team here for a great week at Democracy Now! Uh, at COP27. Um, oh, and Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez will be giving a speech today at the Columbia School of Journalism, reflecting on his 40 years of fighting for racial and social justice in journalism. Check out our website at democracynow.org. Special thanks to our team here and in New York. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.